Hey everyone, this is Pastor Craig. Welcome to another episode of In the Weeds. And um, we are finishing up this great passage in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We talked about that iconic passage about by grace you have been saved through faith. But this whole passage begins, it starts with walking in transgressions and sins, and it ends in walking in works prepared by God, good works prepared by God. And so before we get out of this, I wanted to do a little bit on um, Ephesians 2.1, which begins this passage with what we call the, the bad news, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So in Ephesians 2.1 you were dead in the trans in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and then it goes on to to kind of outline what we called this um, this interlocking directorate of powers of anti-human and anti-god powers like the corrupted cosmos, personal evil spirits like the devil, the prince of the power of the air, um, humans, other humans, the human rulers, the sons of disobedience, and then and then it gets into um, this idea of personal corruption and fallen inclinations when it talks about you once lived in the in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and um, that the the that the bottom line then is that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of like the rest of humanity. And um, what I wanted to do with this podcast is talk a little bit more about the bad news. I know you all want to kind of delve into the bad news. As, as a matter of fact, um, the Protestant tradition that I have come from is one that kind of does um, really emphasize the bad news, and that if you don't emphasize the bad news enough, then you are somehow... Um, you know, not doing it right. Um, you know, if you're not really pounding the pulpit on the bad news, the sinfulness, um, that can be a problem in the tradition that I have been a part of and I've come from. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong. I am saying that that does produce certain things in us. But um, what I wanted to do is just ask this question. Um, okay, you once were dead in your trespasses and sins, and Paul includes himself in that. The question that I wanted to ask, and that is one of these historically theological questions, is when do we become dead in our trespasses and sins? Um, is it, you know, when we commit a sin? Is it when we're born? Is it when we're conceived? Is it, or is it long before that? And, um, you know, for Paul, apparently all of us are sinners, but what do we mean by this? And what do we, um, do we all commit sin acts? Are we able not to commit sin acts? Um, do we have this thing called what people will call a sin nature? Um, what does Paul mean by the flesh? And then ultimately the question is, what role did Adam and his original sin play in this equation, Adam and Eve, let's be inclusive in this. Um, what did their original sin play in this equation? And really, in order to ask that question, so we're going to expand on Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, by going to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21 is kind of the classic passage that talks about this idea of what has been known as original Sin, And what I want to do is I want to read this passage, talk about really the first verse that, um, that talks about death spread to all men because all sinned. How is it that all sin? 
and um, and then to talk a little bit about the historical context of what people have, how people have interpreted that over, um, well, over the millennia, really, over um, uh, over hundreds of years, from Augustine all the way to um, to Calvin and to to us today. So um, so anyway, let me let me just read Romans chapter five verse twelve. It says, therefore. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all people because all sinned. I'm going to keep reading. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. So in this passage, there's going to be this, this idea of, of comparing Adam to Jesus, the second Adam, that through Adam, sin comes into the world, and um, that through Jesus, there's a free gift. And um, in 5.15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. So you've got, you have sin coming into the world through one man, Adam, and then you have this, this the grace of God, the free gift by the grace, coming by the one man, Jesus. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the free gift of the righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as the one trespass led to condemnation for all people, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all people. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So I'll stop there, but you you get a sense here that you have this idea that there's this one sin originally through Adam or Adam and Eve, and talking about the one man's trespass that death begins to reign, and that um, that uh, it, it, if you look back in. Um, uh, in 5.15, for many died through one man's trespass. And even as you go into 5.17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Uh, in 5.18, one trespass led to condemnation for all people. So I'm obviously in this passage, it's talking, it's, it's really kind of trying to emphasize what Jesus has done to bring salvation. But I wanted to ask this question, this idea about how is it that we can talk about, like it says in 5.12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all people. So this idea that how do you get from the sin of Adam to the idea of all sin? Okay, so that's the idea of original sin, and really this question about how do we interpret Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So, um, and what we have really with this is um, a historical uh, debate, 
And um, it, in order to begin this historical debate, and again, if you, <laughs> um, you're going to have to hang on to the hang on to the podcast and and make it through if you want to hear at the very end. I'm going to go. I'm going to walk through some of this, but this is where we're getting into the weeds, right? And um, there is a particular position that that I would hold. Um, and, um, but I'm going to walk through various, um, various approaches to this. Okay. And all of this begins, um, back in the, um, back in essentially the, the late, um, the late fifth century or sorry, the late third century or fourth century. What am I doing? Um, the late fourth century, early fifth century with a, a well-known theologian named Augustine. And um, you probably have heard of Augustine. He was a North African theologian. Um, and um, Augustine was really one of the first theologians of the church um, in the sense that he systematized a number of things. And through his writing, Augustine didn't come to faith until he was um, in his 30s. But he offers a system of theology that really became a foundational system for the church, really until um, uh, until you get to Thomas Aquinas, who kind of um, systematizes it through um, the medieval world, and then um, again, then when you get to like Luther and Calvin, Calvin is really the theologian of the Reformation. Um, not to say that Luther wasn't a, uh, theologically minded, but um, anyway, all that to say, Augustine. Um, and Augustine was one of the first to offer kind of a detailed and precise view of human sin and sinfulness. And um, Augustine was one who did emphasize very highly the sovereignty of God. And um, he basically says that because Adam is the first to sin, um, because of that sin, Adam then becomes prone to sin, this kind of a sinful impl- inclination. And so we're talking about kind of two things here, and that is um, the idea of committing a sin act— as well as having a sinful inclination, whether you want to call that sinful nature um, or simply an inclination towards sin. Um, and so Adam was not created with an inclination to sin, but after his first sin, he had a sinful inclination. This is Augustine's talk. The question is, what does Adam's first sin and that subsequent sinful inclination, what does that do? And Augustine maintained that all human beings after Adam have inherited a broken relationship with God that was caused by the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve. In other words, Adam or uh, Augustine holds that every human being subsequently born inherits that sinful inclination. And not only that sinful inclination, but the guilt of the original sin of Adam and Eve. In other words, um, we're not, they, they've left this as an inheritance to us, and we're not free to choose our inheritance. We accept what we've been given. So, so back to Adam. Adam was not sinful at creation, but because of his sin, he then became sinful uh, and by inclination, and that every human being subsequently has been born sinful with this propensity towards sin and guilty of sin as a result of Adam's sin, not not even necessarily because of their own sin, but because of the sin of Adam. Now, Augustine Augustine believed there's there's some nuances to this. Augustine actually believed that the inheritance of that sin and guilt was biological. In other words, we were actually biologically present in Adam, like 
his progeny that what a <laughs> cover your ears, boys and girls, but that we were actually seminally present in Adam, that our seed was there in Adam, and that because we were there in our origins, that he then that we are actually present when he sins, and therefore we share in that act because of our biological presence in Adam. Okay, not everybody who who believes that we are born with a sinful nature believes that we are biologically present, or that that's the reason. But um, all that to say, that's the Augustinian approach. All right. So Augustine was kind of first on the scene with this, and um, or at least systematized it. And in his day, there was a British monk named Pelagius, who um, who traveled to Rome and was teaching in Rome from about uh, 380 to 410. So roughly a contemporary of Augustine, maybe a little bit after Augustine. Um, but um, Pelagius read what Augustine was teaching about human sinfulness and the need for divine grace. And um, Pelagius had this sense, this kind of anthropological sense of um, the value of human freedom, that humans are free to make their own decisions, and also this kind of value on human responsibility, and that humans are responsible for their actions. And I, you know, the I think in a lot of ways these inclinations are positive in the sense that um, that there's this need that there's a need to respond to divine grace and. Um, and we're held responsible for our own actions. But Pelagius kind of took it a step further, and he he read what Augustine was teaching about this human sinfulness, and he he objected to it because he regarded it as kind of an unacceptable novelty. In other words, um, Pelagius was Pelagius basically held the view that every human being is born like Adam was created pre-fall, and so every human being is in the same predicament as Adam. In other words, humans are born out of the womb with an untainted free will to make decisions. Um, and in other words, what he would say is, well, how could humans be held responsible for something they did not do? How could I be held responsible for something that Adam did that I had no choice in? Again, back to the, the emphasis on human freedom. And so Pelagius, now, before you're like, well, Pelagius, well, Pelagius is essentially later condemned as um, that the Pelagian view, the Augustinian view wins out, but hang on for just a second. Pelagius believed that even if you came out of the womb with this untainted free will, he did believe that every human would eventually fall to temptation and sin. And once that first... Now, even though he didn't believe that you had an inclination towards sin... He felt like living in a fallen world that the temptations would be so great that every human being might, some human beings might last longer, might last shorter, but eventually you would fall to temptation and sin. And once that first sin was committed, you would be guilty of sin and then prone to sin, the sinful inclination, sinful nature, if you will. Okay. So, Though they might end up with the same outcome, Augustine and Pelagius at the end of the day were like, everybody sins and everybody's guilty of sin, and everybody has a sinful inclination. They disagreed about the nature of that when at birth, coming out of the womb, do you have a sinful inclination? Pelagius would say no. Augustine would say yes. Are you guilty of sin coming out of the womb? Pelagius would say no. Augustine would say yes. So those are those are two different 
positions on this um, and very different ideas about the nature, uh, like human nature and what um, like Pelagius basically believed that we were capable of not sinning. Augustine said we were not capable of not sinning, that it was something that we were prone to out of the womb. Pelagius said, no, we're not prone to that. Pelagius thought it was too defeating, that God would never give a command, like God would never say in the Ten Commandments, and he would never give a command that we could not obey. That was a big thing with Pelagius. He would say, God would never give a command that we could not obey. And so, um, but whereas uh, uh, Augustine was saying, look, the, the law was not there. The law was there to teach us a lesson, not necessarily that we were able to obey it. We actually, it brought us to the point of understanding the nature of our sinfulness. So, um, so for Augustine, the, I, this is one of the reasons why Augustine believed in infant baptism. He believed that salvation was in the church, baptism was entrance to the church, and therefore infants who came out of the womb guilty of sin and with a sinful nature needed to be baptized because they were in peril otherwise. So that's that was one of the reasons for um, uh, like Augustinian, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox infant baptism is, hey, look, inf- infants are in danger, and so we've got to bring them into the church where salvation is. If we don't, then there, you know, there's no hope for them. So, anyway, Calvin and Pelagius, or I'm sorry, Augustine and Pelagius. Um, in the day, it was Augustine's view that kind of that won the day. Pelagius is um, condemned as a heretic. <laughs> <laughs> Although it is interesting, later on the the um, the church kind of adopts what we call a semi-Pelagian view, which is that after, with baptism, baptism kind of presses down your sinful nature, um, giving you the ability to make those decisions. Um, so anyway, I'm, I don't know. I, I can't speak as authoritatively on that, but um, but essentially, Augustine does win the day in this debate. All right. Now fast forward. Fast forward to the Protestant Reformation. So um, if Augustine was in the 400s, if this debate between Pelagius, or, uh, Pelagius and Augustine was in the 400s, fast forward into the 1500s, uh, 1500s and 1600s. 1500s, you've got um, Martin Luther and the Wittenberg Door and the beginning of the Protestant Reformation at the beginning of the 1500s, um, 16th century. And so, But um, John Calvin was really the, the theologian of the Reformation in this way, um, and that's why today we would call um, Calvinistic teaching more Reformed teaching. But, um, but one of the things about uh, the Reformation, even for Luther, part of the Reformation was, um, was Roman Catholic priests going back and rereading Augustine. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's what Luther did, and that's how Luther really came on these ideas of justification by grace and kind of that re-emphasis on the um, on the grace of God and moving out of kind of the the system of um, of forgiveness and penance and and uh, and, and all of that. Um, and so Calvin is also a rereader of Augustine. Um, and Calvin essentially agreed with Augustine that he says that Adam was created free, was um, tempted, and he sinned. And then after Adam sins, that he becomes guilty of sin, and that he um, then incurs this kind of propensity towards sin. What Again, we're, we're kind of using shorthand a sinful nature. Um, not a, Sinful nature is kind of a, a term that some people um, balk at. Not, not, not even... Um, 
you don't have to be a heretic to balk at the idea of sinful nature, um, because there's some philosophical issues about nature and the word phusis. And anyway, talk about the weeds. Um, there you go. So I'm I'm calling it a kind of an inclination to sin or being prone to sin. Okay, um, a propensity to sin. And what Calvin believed is that Adam, after he sinned and after he then incurs this propensity towards sin, that all of humanity inherits not only that propensity to sin, but also Adam in or uh, that all humanity inherits Adam's guilt in that sin. But for Calvin, it's not because of a biological tie to Adam like like Augustine, but rather the idea that Adam was the representative of all humanity. This is Calvin, it, by the way, Calvin out of Calvinism comes Presbyterianism, and Presbyterianism is this um, is a system of governance of church governance that is a representative system of governments. I, I I didn't know this until I was um, I roomed with a Presbyterian roommate, but he said you know a lot of the the um, United States government is based on Presbyterian governance. This idea that you would have local presbyteries that represent a whole body of people to a larger bot to a uh, to a uh, a central like a federal head idea and this is actually like our so like our senators in the state of california represent california you as a citizen of california a resident of california they represent you to the federal senate and um Whatever, however, they vote in the Senate is how California votes. Now, whether you like it or not, how Diane Feinstein votes on your behalf, like that is counted as your vote. And so, Calvin was one of the first to think about and to really articulate this idea of representation, and even the idea of imputation. That even though you don't vote this way, you know, your senator's vote is imputed onto you. You you are counted among that vote because that person is your representative. And so Adam is our representative. He voted essentially, and his vote is counted on our behalf. And in that way, we can, it can be said that if Adam sins, we sin because he is our representative. And that is, um, that's the idea of representation. And so for, for Calvin, he the idea is not biological presence that makes us guilty, but federal headship, Adam as federal head, is is what makes us guilty. Now for 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 Calvin, he he uses this idea with with Jesus as well. Like, who do you want to be your representative? You want Adam to be your representative, or you want Jesus to be your representative? And so, this idea of either either being in Adam or in Christ, that is kind of the um, that's that's the Calvinistic way of thinking about this with federal headship, and you can throw an imputation, and we'll probably have a podcast on imputation as we move forward. But that's Calvin. So Calvin is a lot in a lot of ways Augustine for the 16th century in the Protestant Reformation. Now, and so for Calvin, he follows he follows Augustine in that he says that um, when a baby is born. Is it, is it sinful? Does it have a propensity to sin? Yes. So against, against Pelagius, he would say yes. Um, and is that 
baby that comes out of the womb guilty of sin? And he would say, yes, because of the representation of Adam, that in if any human being is being represented by Adam coming into the world. And so essentially, this is for Calvin, uh, the idea of total depravity, um, and that sin and guilt are imputed by a representative. All right? So, um, but essentially the same position as Augustine, except for the idea of why. The why is different. Okay? All right. So, and at, if you know anything about the Reformation, it is um, uh, a, a Calvinist in his day, Jacob Arminius, which we had, we talked about Calvinism and Arminianism. But Arminius um, was also, Arminius emphasized human freedom as well. Now, some people will say that Arminius is just a reboot of Pelagianism. And that is not correct. That's not that's not accurate. Now I'm I'm no Arminian, okay, but it's not okay to simply misrepresent an Arminian position as Pelagian, okay. There is a, there's a difference, and I'm going to talk about what that is related to um, how humans are dead in their trespasses. So Arminius does also emphasize human freedom. Arminius did not like the idea that. Um, Calvin's idea that God's sovereignty that implied that humans had determined fates, or that humans did not have a choice in their salvation or a choice in their damnation. So Arminius emphasized um, very much human freedom as well as human responsibility. And so his views on human sinfulness do come out of his really a high view of human responsibility. Um. So Arminius, his view essentially, eventually will be known as a natural inability, um, and that there's still grace needed for an exercise of free will. But here's the deal. Arminius does believe that humans come out of the womb sinful, with a sinful nature, if you will, or with a propensity to sin, um, or, or prone towards sin. And in that way, they do inherit the corruption brought on by Adam's sin. This is different than Pelagius. Pelagius believed that every baby that comes out of the womb was in exactly the same state as Adam when Adam was created. But Arminius doesn't believe that. Arminius believes that humans do come out of the womb with a sinful nature, okay, and that they're prone to sin. But for Arminius, and this is actually a a very interesting uh, idea, for Arminius, uh, babies are not guilty of sin. They're not guilty by representation, because again, you have for Arminius, each human being is responsible for their own actions and their own choices. So they're not guilty or held responsible for their sin until they're able to sin of their own will. Now, for for Arminius, then this brings up a question: At what point is a child or baby? able to exert its own will to a place where they would be held responsible for it. And for this is where Arminius and where if you where Arminians will talk about the age of accountability. And so and there's no there's no um there's actually a lot of debate about when an age of accountability would come. Um some people some some would say, you know, like there are some church fathers that say, like at the age of two, uh, humans are able to show some spiritual in uh, in 
interest. Um, others I've heard say the age of four or five. Um, some would look at like the age of bar mitzvah, which would be the age of 12 uh, as an age of accountability, age of adulthood. Um, but it is, but essentially whatever age you choose, you're only talking about an age of accountability if you believe that there is a that humans are not held responsible for their sin up to a certain point. So for Arminius, you are sinful when you come out of the womb, but you're not responsible, you're not guilty of sin until you're able to commit a sin of the type of Adam, like a, a sin of the will. And so um, the age of accountability is something that comes um, in Arminian circles or Wesleyan circles. Wesleyans would be like Methodist, Nazarene, um, and anyone essentially who's talking about an age of accountability would fall under this particular um, particular view. So, so again, you've got Arminians are not Pelagian, okay? Um, Arminians do believe that there is a inheriting of sin, of a sinful nature or a propensity to sin, um, but not guilt. And again, that is over and against the idea of the, the Calvinistic federal headship and the Augustinian idea of biological presence or being seminally present, that you have a, a sin nature and you inherit guilt. And so, um, and again, I had said on, other, uh, on another In the Weeds that I am essentially, um, when it comes to this, I'm essentially Reformed. Um, I'm a Calvinistic in the sense that I do believe that um, because of Adam's sin, that we are born with a sinful nature, or I, I would say a propensity towards sin. We are born bent towards sin, um, and that we have, we, there is something, there is a depravity, um, a total depravity, and, um, and that we are indeed guilty of sin, even before we ever commit a sin of our own will, because of the nature of our representation of being in Adam. All right. Now, here here's a, a follow up question. And I don't want to. Um, we might have a further podcast on this. Um, I guess one of the things just to say about this is, what do we do with this information? <laughs> like, why do we why do we do this? I think one is it helps us to understand the bad news, and it helps us to understand in Ephesians chapter two when Paul is talking about you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked that this idea of spiritual death is one of those things that is inherited, essentially, from, um, from Adam. And we come out of the womb spiritually dead, and um, sure, the, the powers, this kind of interlocking directorate of powers and the web of powers um, capitalizes on that. And um, some of that is internally, and some of that is external to us. Um, it does seem like the original sin begins externally, like Adam is not thinking about sin until um, Adam and Eve are not thinking thinking about sin until the serpent externally puts that idea in their mind. And so there is something about the goodness of of God's creation, um, and then this external it comes externally into us. That you you still have this question about how indeed did it come to the serpent or to the or to Satan or the devil? Um, that might be a whole nother thing. But um, but all that to say, it does deserve some reflection on our part about how we understand this, um, and even how you know what do we do with you know God forbid that um, an infant dies or we lose 
a child, I think one of the things that we do is, this is one of the reasons why um, I think Calvinism a- appeals to me, is we say, look, we, that we give that child to, to, the, to the grace of God, to God's, um, God's care. God is the one who determines that fate, and um, if election has taken place before the foundation of the world, then God knows, um, and we can trust that 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 child is in the hands of a good God, and um, that God is doing the right thing by him with that. Um, and that is a hard—there's This is there, there's no easy way to walk through that, and certainly where does that comfort come from um, about when a, a baby dies? And that that's one of the reasons why this debate is so um, contentious, is it is so—I um, mean, it's—well— it's so difficult to even think about the idea of a young child, you know, not being saved. And for both Calvin and, and Augustine, that, that is true. That's why Augustine's like, we got to baptize those infants. We got to get them in. And for Calvin, he would say, we give that decision to God who has elected from eternity past. And so that's, um, and for, for Arminians, they would say, well, they're before the age of accountability, and so they're, they're, they're not guilty of sin. You get, the, you get that idea, like there's different, where do you find comfort in a, a position like that? And um, so theolo- I would, you know, but theologically, this is where, in my mind, where that comfort comes from is that we commit that child into the hands of a righteous and good God who has determined before the foundations of the world um, what would hap- what what might be the result of this? And um, so, anyway, that whew, I mean, even talking about this is not is is fairly uncomfortable. But this is where these are the hard um, decisions. And as you think about this for yourself, you might think, well, what has been my home based position on this? And should, do I need to have second thoughts about my 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 home based position, my kind of embedded theology? Um, how how do I think about this going forward? And and again, maybe you don't feel like you need to, but it just this is a chance to think a little bit about that. Now, one of the questions, and this I, this is a little bit extra. Somebody said, since you didn't do one last week in the weeds, you should do a little bonus. So here's a little bonus content on in the weeds. One of the questions that comes up is, if humans, if if I'm correct, or if Calvin is correct and Augustine are correct, and humans come out of the womb with a sinful nature, total depravity guilty of sin, guilty of the sin of Adam, um, either by their presence there or by representation, then how in the world do humans ever do or experience anything good? <laughs> like, how, if humans are so messed up and guilty and sinful, how does anything good come from a human being? And this is where we come to a doctrine. This is a, a doctrine that is a little bit, um, I think, neglected in the Protestant tradition, um, and that is what we call the doctrine of common grace. Common grace, and it kind of goes to the to the notion of the doctrine of that humans are created in the image of God, and that even though humans are created in the image of God, uh, or humans are created in the image of God, and just because they fall, it doesn't mean that the image of God goes away. There's something enduring about humans being image bearers. It just means that there's a, a tainting or a corruption or a, a twisting of some of those things that, you know, humans are made to have authority, but with the fall, that authority becomes domination. Humans are made 
to um, to have a vocation and that vocation or that work that becomes twisted to become um, some kind of um, you know a, a yoke or a harness or some kind of unhealthy work styles um, or humans are made to have these relationships but relationships go go south and they sour um, but that those inclinations of being created in God's image still remains and the idea that common grace, um, common grace. So Wayne Grudem defines common grace as um, uh, as the grace of God, by which He gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of salvation. In other words, there is a common grace. There's a grace that um, there are good things that can be experienced by all people, regardless of whether or not they have faith in Jesus. So, like. The sun shines, birds sing, you know, crops grow for the righteous and the wicked. Um, that, you know, th- these kind of external things of um, things in the world, the physical realm, that there's, there's all these things, but also even in the intellectual, emotional realm that um, people can experience love. People can experience what it means to be loved, or they can they can actually, even if you're not, you don't have faith in Jesus, you can indeed love someone. Now, this is where you start to get into questions about, you know, is that is that love actually pure? Is it good? I think, but even this idea of like appreciation of beauty, appreciation of friendship, being a friend, kindness, loyalty, um, there might not be perfect expressions of those things, but there's some capacity that is retained based on simply being made in God's image. You also think of like, look, you can have advancements in knowledge and technology. You know, smart people, whether they believe in Jesus or not, can invent medicines or um, uh, uh, can can invent the technology for, um, uh, you know, for, um, you know, vaccinations or things like that. I mean, these are things like vaccines have eradicated disease. Like those are good things. And you don't have to be a believer to come up with a medical advancement. And now there are many believers who have been part of medical advancement. One of the, um, one of the guys who mapped the human genome is a believer. And so these are, these are awesome things. And we would expect that humans, because they're creating the image of God, smart people are going to come up with good ideas. And so, but this is all what we would call common, common grace. These are blessings from God that any human being can experience. And, you know, the na- obviously the nature of what is common and what is special uh, grace might be up for debate. Um, but the question of if humans are sinful and guilty, how can they ever experience anything good or produce anything beneficial? The theological answer to that question is common grace. Okay. Now, I, common grace is not a saving grace, but common grace is a grace that humans are able to experience the good blessings of God, even uh, irregardless of their faith or not. I would recommend, if you are interested in reading a nice short book, um, Richard Mao, he has written a book called He Shines in All That's Fair. Um, it's a nice short book. Um, Richard Mao used to be the president at Fuller. He is a reformed um, uh, Calvinist. He's a, um, uh, oh gosh, who's his guy? Um, oh, it's going to come to me later. Anyway, um, uh, Mao is spelled M-O-U-W, and the book is He Shines in All That's Fair. He Shines in All That's Fair is a line from one of the verses of This Is My Father's World. This is my Father's world. He shines in all that's fair. 
Um, so anyway, he shines in all this fair, and it's an it's a it's um it's an exploration of the nature of common grace and how we as believers can engage in common grace, even if we are not theologically aligned with those who are producing great art or um, medical advancements or technological advancements. How how do we engage in um, really what is being called the good, the beautiful, and um, the true? And um, I think that's I think it's a particularly important issue right now because of the nature of um, deconstruction and um, how people are even deconstructing out of their faith toward a more toward embracing common grace. Um, and I so anyway, that's a little bit more than what you bargained for. And maybe we do need to do a whole um, in the weeds on common grace. But um, anyway, this is not about common grace. This is about original sin. Uh, but that's a little bit of a next step. So there you go. Hopefully you enjoyed this little foray into the weeds on original sin and um, Augustine, Pelagius, Arminius, and Calvin, and um, that it has produced some interesting thoughts for you. Um, Anyway, I hope that was helpful. I will see you guys on Sunday.